This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our most frequent celebrity guest scorer, (laughs) my mother, Christine Duncan. Hi, everyone. Tonight, for our 165th episode, we revisit the 1992 courtroom drama, A Few Good Men, directed by Rob Reiner, written by Aaron Sorkin, starring Tom Cruise as Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, Jack Nicholson as Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, Demi Moore as Lieutenant Commander Joanne Galloway, Demi Moore as Lieutenant Commander Joanne Galloway, Kevin Bacon as Captain Jack Ross, Kiefer Sutherland as First Lieutenant Jonathan James Kendrick, Kevin Pollack as Lieutenant Sam Weinberg, Wolfgang Bodison as Lance Corporal Harold W. Dawson, James Marshall as Private First Class Loudon Downey, J.T. Walsh as Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Andrew Markinson, J.A. Preston as Judge Colonel Julius Alexander Randolph, Michael DiLorenzo as Private First Class William Santiago, Noah Wiley as Corporal Jeffrey Owen Barnes, and Cuba Gooding Jr. as Corporal Carl Edward Hamaker. Recognition for this movie? A Few Good Men opened on December 11, 1992. It grossed, 15 mil- it grossed $15.5 million in its opening weekend and was the number one film at the box office for the next three weeks. Overall, it grossed $141 million in the U.S. and $101.9 million internationally, for a total of $243 million. The film was nominated for Best Picture, Supporting Actor for Jack Nicholson, Film Editing, and Sound Mixing. It lost the first three awards to Unforgiven. It has since been recognized by the American Film Institute on the following lists. In 2003, for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains, Colonel Nathan R. Jessup was a nominated villain. In 2005, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes, Jessup's line, You Can't Handle the Truth, came in at number 29. In 2008, AFI's 10 Top 10, this came in as the number 5 courtroom drama film of all time. A Few Good Men currently holds an 84% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, a 62% rating on Metacritic, and a 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So let's start here, as we always do. What is your relationship to this movie? Well, we rented it, I believe. Yeah, we were just talking about that. So it would have been shortly after Allison was born in 1993, probably the summer or late summer. I know that we both really enjoyed the film, and we've watched it multiple times since that time. It was a Big deal. It was one of the first things I think I'd seen Tom Cruise in. Didn't you see uh, Top Gun? Well, other than Top Gun, yeah. But yeah, let's just ignore one of the biggest movies of the decade of the eighties. All right, but he was still a rising star at the time, and they were so so. I enjoyed him in this, and I 
I really love the courtroom drama thing. 12 Angry Men is still one of my favorite films. My Cousin Vinny, the whole the whole drama, you know, the whole courtroom thing. And I love that. So, yeah. So we was in our early relationship, early marriage that we watched this film together. And we've watched it multiple times together since. I'm not sure if I went into it on the first episode. My first inkling or remembrance of even hearing about this movie was when we were in Germany in 2006 and Malta happened to be like watching this movie on his computer or something. And I I asked what he was watching and it was this film before that I hadn't really heard of it. And I still think it was a couple of years after that, that I actually watched it for the first time. That being said, I really don't remember much about the first time because it's like Shawshank Redemption. You've seen it so many times. It's hard to remember the first time. Yeah. I don't know. I can take courtroom dramas where I can leave them. They're kind of boring to me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Spoken like the lawyer on the show. Everybody else is an armchair lawyer. Anyway. <laughs> so what is this movie actually about? I think it's writing a wrong I think it's also maybe uncovering some of the hidden secrets in the military, things that normal people wouldn't know about. And, you know, I, th- I think it was shortly after this, we started, they started talking about the bullying and stuff that goes on in the military. There was a lot of turmoil and uproar over the gay rights in the military, women in the military and a lot of the hazing and stuff that went on. And that was all in the 90s. So I think this movie helped bring about some hidden secrets. It's about sons living in the shadows of their fathers. Well, I'll make it even more basic than that. And I was discussing this briefly at lunch, but I think the movie boils down to the emotion, am I good enough? I think at most points in everybody's life, And it's not necessarily if you had like a famous father, which obviously would give you a complex. I'm sure LeBron's kids going into basketball are going to always be measured against him. But it's more of, can I live up to what everybody thinks I can't? Can I prove everybody wrong? And so there's kind of an underdog aspect to the movie that I don't think we often talk about in the context of the themes of this. In fact, thinking about it more, I actually likened it somewhat to a sports film. There's kind of the basic structure of a sports film in that he's got these tiny moments where he's facing off against individual players or going against individuals that uh, give him a challenge. But ultimately, the big baddie at the end, you face him early on in the movie and then it comes back at the end and he's got to finally beat him. And so it's kind of reminiscent a little bit of the structure of something like Major League, where Charlie uh, Sheen's character has to face down Clue Hayworth or Pete Vukovic, and he keeps letting home runs off of him early on in the movie, but then he strikes him out at the end of the, the movie. In a similar way, this borrows some of that structure in kind of the underdog tale. Tom Cruise is recruited because nobody wants him to actually look into this. Nobody thinks that he's capable of doing anything more than just doing a basic plea deal and that more than likely these guys are going to end up in prison for the rest of their lives. And slowly through this, he kind of works his way around it 
until he does possibly the unthinkable. And he goes against the really powerful institution of the military, those especially at the top, and has some level of consequence for their actions for something that I think we have different feelings about in a modern sense, comparative to what I think the military has always felt about itself. Well, the fact that he went up against him knowing that if he was wrong or he couldn't get him to admit it, he was going to be court-martialed. I mean, I'm not sure necessarily why that is so because I'm not that involved in the military, but... It's false. What's false? It's not true. You, you, you have an ethical obligation to press an issue. I mean, you can't do something without any basis, but there was enough basis there. That was, it's just a ploy that they used a, a, a device within the film to get it, you know, to build tension. And it was successful. Right. Because you didn't know whether he was going to do it or not until he figured out that he was backing him into a corner and he was going to get him to spill. So then is this the most rewatchable film of all time? It's got to be among at least the most rewatched movies of the 90s. This has been on cable forever on AMC, TNT, TBS. I know that Shawshank is often thought of in this category, and there are a few other films that are probably pretty close. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws. Pretty Woman. I could watch that movie over and over and over. But I think this somehow cuts across a lot of different demographics. And I think it's at least part of the conversation. If it isn't the number one, it's probably in the top five. I agree. This is a movie that if it comes up and it's in the middle, I can pick it up in the middle and finish it just as well as if I started it from the beginning. And you know everything because you've seen it so many times. (laughs) So it's kind of like a a comfort food for, for viewing. So let's get some more background on the movie. Dad, do you want to give us the plot summary you have ready? A Few Good Men is a riveting legal thriller that delves into the depths of military justice and the clash between honor and truth. Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, Tom Cruise, a talented but complacent lawyer, finds himself assigned to defend two Marines charged with murder. As he uncovers a web of secrecy and cover-ups, Caffey must confront the formidable Colonel Nathan Jessup, Jack Nicholson, a commanding officer determined to protect his authority at any cost. With compelling performances and sharp dialogue, director Rob Reiner crafts a gripping courtroom drama that examines the price of integrity in the face of overwhelming power. We do not have a did you know section this week as we did that on the previous version of this episode. So we're going to take our first break of the show and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing the film that recently was the number one movie on the Sight and Sound Greatest Movies of All Time list with the mystery thriller Vertigo from 1958. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock, Screenplay by Samuel A. Taylor, Alec Koppel, and Maxwell Anderson, starring James Stewart and Kim Novak. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. 
Also, just a note that, again, because this is one of our revisit episodes, you can find the original version of the episode from, I believe, last June when we did it the first time. And you can listen to all of our breakdown and analysis of the movie during that as far as all the background and things that we're not going to discuss on this episode. If you've never been a part of one of our revisit episodes, as mom is now a novice to this particular type of episode, despite this being her 10th guest appearance on the show, we are going to basically re-examine each category as we go along and determine whether we were right the first time or we need to make some slight adjustments. Now, we've had some pretty big swings on a few different movies that are currently within our top 10, both of our top two films and three of our top four films are all reflective of revisits and after revisits moved up the list. We also have Raiders of the Lost Ark that is currently number seven on the list after a revisit as that was our original first episode of this show. Currently, A Few Good Men is sitting at number five in our rankings. I would say that it's likely to have at least a slight adjustment from that ranking, but Where will it land? So if you're both ready, let's go to the Stanley rubric. The original legacy score on this one was a 9.5. And I have to argue, maybe you could flip whether it's audience or the industry, but I came in with the exact same score. 4.5 for industry, 5 for the audience. Well, I don't have any of those particular scores, but I definitely think that this left left a viewing audience wanting more of this type of thing. I think that the legacy on this is high. It's, it's rewatchable. It's, it's a terrific script. And so I would definitely have it at least as a nine. It might be the crowning achievement of just about every principal actor, director, or writer on, or working on this film. Theoretically, it might be Aaron Sorkin's best written script, I don't believe it is. I know Dad disagrees with me there. I think it's possibly Tom Cruise's best dramatic performance. I think it's the best Jack Nicholson was as a supporting actor. I think it might be Rob Reiner's best job as a director, although he's got some pretty big movies to contend with, so I I, I might be a little bit out on a limb on that one, given depending on whether you like When Harry Met Sally or Princess Bride a little bit more, maybe. So I, I think at least you could say it's Dad's theory on rays of light all coinciding or crossing each other at the same point in time where everybody just was at the top of their game and the top of their career in this one moment to create something so ridiculously memorable. Well, and I think even even Demi Moore's character as Joanne Galloway, I think she was absolutely believable in this film. I think she, too, had everything right her attitude, how she felt about things, the way she presented herself. And I think that was another fantastic performance by her. I think one of her best as well. And I would dare to say that Kevin Pollock's probably been eating out on this movie for 30 years. (laughs) Wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I knew Kevin Pollock as a comedian. He did a lot of stand-up And I think this was the first time I had seen him in more of a dramatic role. And he's done several films. I mean, he was in Grumpy Old Men and Grumpier Old Men, among some others, uh, the whole nine yards. But this is the first time I'd seen him in a dramatic performance, and I thought he did a very commendable job. 
So for me, I came to the same conclusion, but I flipped my numbers too. I have a five for the industry because I think this kind of set Sorkin as a as a benchmark for a screenwriter and all of the or the actors in these films went on to have significant careers. I think the legacy I went down a half a point, even though it's still a popular film. I think it's lost a little bit of its um, legs, so to speak, over the last few years. Um, the simple fact is, is that we couldn't find it streaming anywhere. Kind of exemplifies the fact that maybe it's not as popular right now as it was a few years ago. So, But I came to a 9.5 anyway. I think there's so many other good films that that you can't have everything streaming all at the same time or it loses interest. So when it comes back on, people will rewatch it. Well, not to mention that the streaming rights are very expensive to host that many things. We're getting significant cutbacks on just about every major media player on the streaming scene right now that is clipping back what's available on their services. I think one of the largest ones is still going to be Warner Brothers because it's going to be very cheap for them to basically broadcast a lot of classic films. And that's why I still prefer their service, which is now Max as of today. But even so, did you have any scores for any of these, Mom? Yeah, I said I had a nine for that. I just don't have it. I don't have it broke down between industry and audience. I see. Okay. My misunderstanding. So, Dad, the last time we did a revisit was on Goodfellas, and we kind of compromised and debated whether we would settle on a particular score. You and I both have a 9.5. Did you want to try and do it as the average, as we've mostly done, or did you want to try and debate this yet between Mom as to whether it's a 9 or a 9.5? Oh, my goodness. I won't even go there. We can do the 9.5. I think I think that it's good enough. I, I just am hesitant to mark something quite up to a 10. I think if I were to pick apart one point on dad's flipping of the categories from where I'm at, I think the recognition of this movie and certain lines from the movie are so embedded within pop culture at this point that it's hard for people not to immediately recognize them. Whereas Aaron Sorkin, I don't think got his true staying power as a screenwriter from this movie, but rather doing the West Wing. Okay. But either way, we'll settle at a 9.5, so it matches the original score. If we continue along this path, this episode will be worthless, or at least futile. (laughs) But I have a feeling that this next category is going to take a slight dip, at least for me. Impact Significance, the original score on this one was a 9. I'm dropping mine down to an 8. And part of that has to do with 1992 had a lot of big movies. And as far as box office and staying power, yes, if you want to make the video rental argument, Dad, which I'm sure you're going to. Of course. I still think this was not a zeitgeisty movie in the moment. I think this has become bigger over time and probably after the five years, particularly given the amount of people that were involved. Yes, you had Tom Cruise as a big star, but he alone was not selling the movie. You had to get Jack Nicholson. Rob Reiner is on a bit of a heater at this point, but has he really 
cemented himself as one of these A-list directors. He'd done a lot of good movies, but not really great ones until a lot of his movies just turned into all-time classics 10 years down the road. This was the number 20 finishing box office movie of that year. Things that finished ahead of it. The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Under Siege. The remake of Dracula. Fried Green Tomatoes. The Last of the Mohicans finished above this in box office receipts. So it's just hard for me, especially because it only got a slightly tepid response at the Oscars. It had decent reviews, but they weren't like outstanding. This still has kind of a, it's a popular movie among the audience, but critics aren't necessarily terribly enamored with it. They like it, but it's not like one of the most outstanding artistic creations ever made. It's just a nice pop culture movie. I think that it slightly lowers that effect for me. And in the moment when we did it last year, I thought this was an area where we might have a little bit of a difference. So I'm at an eight. Well, and I, I was thinking an eight or an 8.5 with this too, just because of the sheer so lineup. settle on one thing. Are you doing an eight or an 8.5? Or are you splitting the difference to an 8.25? I'll split the difference. How's that? No. But um, with just the cast, I mean, Kevin Bacon was just coming or he had done um, uh, Footloose a few years prior to that. And he, but he hadn't had a lot of huge roles at that time. And yeah, you already talked about the guy who plays Sam. I forget Kevin Pollack. Yes. Kevin Pollack. I mean, he was kind of a, people didn't know a lot about him either. And he was showing up and Nicholson of course had been around for quite a while, but he drew people to this movie where it showcased all these other actors and actresses that really, this catapulted them. So I, I think this was a significant movie in several ways for several of those people, as well as this whole courtroom drama thing that just propelled more of similar ilk movies. Well, I do think this got drowned out a little bit at the time because this is like the original run of NYPD Blue, which was big, like in that moment, as was the beginnings of Law & Order, like the original series before SVU and all the other spinoffs, the interest in courtroom dramas was higher, but you know, this particularly, I just want to remind you of something that this movie came out just not even two years after we invaded the Gulf. And that was really the first big military effort since Vietnam that we had been involved in. And so military had again become somewhat popular and nobody really looked at it a whole lot since another big war right so i think this came on the heels of the whole gulf or persian gulf thing and while people were still interested in what was going on in the military out of curiosity dad do you remember approximately when rodney king was because i want to say it was 92 um it was 93 was it 93 okay Yep, we moved and we moved uh, from Beloit. No, I take that back. It was 92. We moved from Beloit, and three weeks after we moved, uh, the video store that we used to go to was firebombed during riots after the verdict. Right. I remember that now that you say that. Dad, we have an 8 and an 8.25 already on the board. Where do you want to come down? Well... Uh... 
I was still a nine. I think that, uh, again, this was a film that I think everybody saw either in the theaters or on video. It was hugely popular and everybody talked about it. And so I can't give it anything. I was not going to give any marks down for the public. I do think maybe I'm overstating the industry. And I suppose I could go to... So are you coming all the way down to the 8? Or it seemed like almost a natural settling point is the 8.5. Or the 8.25 like mom. We'll just be indecisive. <laughs> well, I was I was going to go with an 8.5. Because I could go down to a 4 for the industry. And a 4.5 for the public for an 8.5. All right. I think that's probably proper. So we have a half point adjustment from the original score to an 8.5. Novelty on this one, we had an 8.75 originally, and I'm not really sure why we were that high. No. I have a 7 now, and I suppose I can explain my reasoning, but it seems like a comfortable 7 based on it's got a lot of similar structures. The courtroom drama thing was kind of in vogue of the time. So this doesn't seem all that different. It wasn't like anybody was putting on a, a new tour de force. It was just a really well-directed, well-acted, and well-written performance by everybody. It just wasn't necessarily novel. Right. Well, I mean, the first that first courtroom drama with 12 Angry Men was... A long time Again, before that. I contend is not a courtroom drama because nothing happens in the courtroom or very little, like the first two minutes of the movie. Dana, when was Night Court on? Was Night Court on at the same time? Throughout the, throughout the 80s. Okay. Okay, so that adds into it. Mom, it seems like you also had a 7? Yes. Well, I had a 7.5, but I'll concur with the 7. <laughs> We're going to end discussion with that? Come well, on. Well, I mean, I don't, I, and looking back at it, I really am like, why did we think this was so novel? I mean, courtroom dramas, um, Verdict with Paul Newman. I mean, there was a ton of them. I think we did it because it's the only military courtroom drama of this ilk, of this era. I mean, yes, there's a couple of scenes, but it's a very limited hearing set for the Kane Mutiny. And we kind of had military tribunals for judgment at Nuremberg when we did it last year, which I highly suggest to everybody. I still think it's one of our top maybe three episodes we've ever done to go listen to that one. But as far as courtroom drama goes, it's different. Like they have to explain a lot of the rules to you, even if they're fake, which is the court martial and the stakes at the end. Yeah. But we can take our second break here, I suppose, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, releasing in the early part of this June, friend of the show, Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast, and I are back with our special series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stanley rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month we're covering the much-maligned Phase 1 movie, the Incredible Hulk from 2008. 
Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. All right, that leads us to our next category of classicness. And Dad, this is normally your category, so I'll give it to you in a second. Our original classicness score on this one was a 9.25. Actually, I thought that was a little low. I went with a 9.5. I mean, we have a uh, African-American as a judge. We have a strong lawyer female. We have lots well, of different... Uh, hold on, hold on. Strong female lawyer? I object. No, I strenuously object. <laughs> she wasn't a good courtroom lawyer, but she got all kinds of accommodation or got commendations for her work in internal affairs. So, Although, to be fair, also both of the defendants, an African-American and a farm boy. Yeah. Yeah. They're the ideal... But it ref- it, they reflect the Marine Corps. Yeah. I, I mean, suppose. I just thought it was a little on the nose to who was going to be in trouble. The <laughs> the poor white kid and the, you know, minority. Maybe a little bit. That was a little bit of a of a. I know, it's, it's picking nits. It's picking nits. But, um, so that's where I am on this. I, I thought that I couldn't find anything that I thought was, was, you know, that really bothered me. I had a nine. I maybe could be swayed up. I think that part of our feelings and attitudes towards the military have really been back and forth. So in this era at the time, I would imagine that there were people that were rebelling against the pro-Reagan military industrial complex 80s and the notion of like Top Gun and Rocky Four, where we're beating the Russians. And so this kind of undermines a little bit of that pro-military patriotism aspect that we'd been kind of mired in. And then you get to the Bush years with Afghanistan and Iraq and all the other crap that was going on. And we've kind of gone in the opposite direction where we'll support our troops, but, you know, invading places and the the rah-rah of it and the, the true patriotism, other than just saying the generic line of we support our troops, just isn't quite there as it used to be. And so, yes, maybe we use those terms of honor and duty as the butt of jokes at parties, but I, I just, I think we're in a slightly different place. I think one of the other classic parts of this is Weinberg making such a big deal out of, they bullied a weaker kid. I mean, given where we're at socially in the last five to ten years, and with the conversations online, bullying's become a much bigger issue, and so I think that resonates as well. So maybe there are a few things that are well ahead of its time, but it also is starting to get to the age. I mean, it's 30 plus years old now where it's a rather classic or I would say I start to factor in like a timelessness. You know, this movie could very easily be watched in about 10 or 20 years and still have somewhat of the same effect. I think so as well. And it wasn't just the line about the weaker kid, but it was also the line that... uh, I'm having a terrible time with names this evening. Howard. Um, the duck. Cosell. <laughs> what was his name? I don't remember there being a Howard in the film. Yeah, I thought they called him Hale, but it, but the Harold. Harold. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, so how can you forget Dad's alternate ego? I don't know for whatever reason I. One of several, it. actually, but okay. 
we won't go with Alphonse Fitzgerald here. Where he says, you know, turns to the Loudon character and says, you know, we didn't protect him. It was our job to protect him. And that's what we did wrong at the very end when they still ended up with the dishonorable discharge. And Loudon doesn't understand why. Just really wise. So you're going to probably have to break the tie between us, Mom. Where did you come down as a score? I had a nine. I'm just really um, reticent to go too much higher. Although I think that the next category I might have to. Okay. So that sounds like two votes for a nine and one for a 9.5. I know originally we were at a 9.25. Well... I guess keep the 9.25. I don't see any reason to necessarily change that one. Okay. Rewatchability. I have a 10. I'm sorry. I could watch this film over and over. Dad, I feel I'm going to be outvoted on this one. I'm at a 9. You're at a 9? I'm at a 9. I was at a 9.5. Well... Maybe okay. we'll just have to all agree at the 9.5. I just... That's this, fine because... This film is fantastic and I like all of the different scenes and, you know, even when Galloway's walking in the rain and he's trying to run after her to say that he's going to put Jessup on the stand, I just... I don't know. It It's just full of really good, poignant moments that I enjoy watching. By the way, one, one, one thing that crossed my mind when I watched it this time that I never thought about before. Wasn't Tom Cruise drunk driving? Uh, He had sobered up by that time. Was he the one that was driving? Yeah, he was driving after her. No, no, because he got out of the car. He got out of the car. Yeah, he drove after her. She's walking down the street, and he's driving after her. I'm going to put him on the stand. And he drank some coffee by that time. (laughs) Oh, yeah, because coffee will sober you up. I don't know. Maybe he wore off some of the booze with his uh, rant on the galactically stupid. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think he was going too far either because she had just barely left before he got the car. There's a defense. I was only going around the block. (laughs) So you really can't charge me with drunk driving. (laughs) Well, you do have to be caught in order to, you know. Well, that's true. I mean, you've always said, you know, there's a difference between those that commit crimes and criminals. Yes. Most of the time, it's the fact that the criminals are just a little more stupid than... Or poorer. Mm. You made this point last week with OJ. I No, that's convictions. Because they, their ability to to have certain defenses and stuff, so yes. Unless you're convicted, you're not a criminal. I understand, but getting caught. Just have better accountants. That leaves us with a 9.5 for this then, right? Yes, it does. Okay. Now, audience score did have an adjustment from last year because the Google users dropped from a 90% to an 84%, which I thought was interesting. We still have an 89% for Rotten Tomatoes, but that actually drops it from an 8.95 to an 8.65 audience score. So... Just to recap all the categories now, we went from a 9.5 to a 9.5 on Legacy. We went from a 9 to an 8.5 on Impact Significance. 
We went from an 8.75 to a 7 on novelty, our sharpest drop. We went from a 9.25 on classicness to a 9.25. We went up from an 8.75 on rewatchability to a 9.5. And we adjusted from audience score of an 8.95 to an 8.65. The original score on this one was a 54.2. And our new score on this one is a 52.4. So originally it was number five on the list, and it now drops down to between The Matrix and Goodfellas. Okay. You know, I mean, it's in decent company here as far as 90s movies, because in this order, we have Pulp Fiction, The Shawshank Redemption, Jurassic Park, The Matrix. Now we'll have A Few Good Men, Goodfellas, Groundhog Day, and The Wizard of Oz is sandwiched in there, but... The Silence of the Lambs just after that. That's a, like, really big swath of 90s films. Yes. So I I actually think this is a little bit more appropriate. I always thought it was weird to have this in the top 10, but... So, Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. uh, We lost uh, Tina Turner, 83, American musician. I think there were three different biopics made of her life. Yeah, there was one not too long ago that was done, I want to say in the last five years. But I think that was a documentary as opposed to like a a true biopic. I think you're referring mostly to What's Love Got to Do With It with Lawrence Fishburne and I think Angela Bassett. Ray Stevenson, 58, a North Irish actor. He was uh, in Rome, Thor, Punisher, Warzone. I think if you watched a lot of the Oscar potential movies last year, his biggest claim to anything on at least recency fame would be as the villain for RRR, a movie that I really enjoyed from last year. And I think that if more people actually saw it, I thought it was fun, thrilling. And uh, my first real experience with Tollywood, he's also supposed to be on the full first season of a Star Wars show on Disney Plus called Ahsoka or anyone that actually knows what that is, as opposed to both of you, which are just giving me blank stares. I have, I'm giving you a blank stare because I have no comment to make and have no interest in what it is you're talking about. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Marlene Clark, 73, American actor and model. She was uh, in Sanford and Son, uh, Slaughter, and The Beast Must Die. And then uh, Jim Brown, Hall of Fame football player with the Cleveland Browns, actor in The Dirty Dozen and Mars Attacks, and a civil rights activist. Quite possibly the greatest running back of all time in the conversation for best football player of all time. The only non-quarterback to win the MVP three times. Interestingly, Marlene Clark and Jim Brown were in a or did a movie together, and they both died on the same day. Hmm. I guess I did not know that. So we remember these here with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Again, this would normally be our time for best quotes, but we did that in the original episode, so I'm just going to skip to a new remaining question I have. At what point do you think Caffey realizes he has Jessup in a logical trap? 
usually there's some like visual cue where you would think where it flashes on his face or there's a close up and he's kind of got an aha moment. There's really not in this. Oh, but I think there is. I'm sorry. I think just before he asks the question, he pauses, he looks up and he's trying to determine if he's going to go down that road. And then he does. Well, I think he gives that really good shell-shocked moment where his first set of questions with foot lockers and, I don't know, uniforms or whatever. I can't remember the exact line. Oh, foot lockers and phone bills doesn't work. It's like in a, a military movie where a flashbang goes off and you hear kind of the tinnitus going off or the ringing and somebody just kind of is stunned. That was where he was in that moment until he until he commits to going down the further rabbit hole and going after him again. And from that point, I just don't know if there's any real giveaway that he has him up until the point where he asks the question. I don't know. I, maybe you're picking up on something I'm not. I'd have to go back and watch it again. I just didn't think there was any necessary indication. So it gives you that true moment of aha when it happened. It's the moment where <clears throat> Nicholson says, you know, is this all you've got? That's when he knows he's got him. Because Nicholson thinks at this point he's in control and that he is running the cross-examination. And the minute you can get a witness to believe they're in control as a lawyer, you have complete control. By the way, that's a fine for clearing your throat into the mic again. Okay. And that's another fine for covering your mouth while you're speaking. Is that a fine too? No, I'll accept that. All right. That's just my desserts. Anyway. Speaking of which, there's dessert at home. <laughs> We're not done with the show yet. <laughs> All right. Any remaining questions for either of you? I don't have any. No, I, I, I ultimately wonder what happened. Um, my guess is he was charged with murder, Jessup. He'll plead down. He won't get substantial charges. I'm sure that he'll be basically drummed out, but he'll be forced to kind of retire and he'll still get a lot of his pension and benefits. They went to, to arrest Kendrick too. And he'll be one of the founding members of the Blackwater private military company selling its services or something of that iteration. And I'm sure Kendrick will be one of the like group leaders or platoon leaders or something to that effect. Yeah. Yeah. The, the people in high circumstances like that don't still don't face like true consequences. Even then final thoughts for the week, mom, let's let you lead off. I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to be on the show again on my 10th show. And yeah, it's been a good experience and I'm looking forward. I can't remember when the next time I appear. I think it's in a couple months. I think your next one is supposed to be There's Something About Mary. Uh, yes, I love that film. It's been a while since I've seen it. so Just make sure to bring some hair that. gel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dad? I really don't have anything. I mean, it's kind of, uh, you know, I guess the only comment I would make is, is that some of the shows I've been streaming for a while are winding down and, it's kind of sad to see them leave, but 
the endings have so far been so well done that it's going to almost make it more difficult to see them leave. And that would be uh, Succession and Ted Lasso for two uh, that I normally watch. Yeah, since we're recording this for our Memorial Day episode in advance, about a week ahead, I'm sure Sunday night's going to be a big night for at least me, where I'm texting three different people or three different groups on the ending of Succession, which will be 90 minutes. But I think the biggest thing for me is now looking into this summer where there's no major sports going on, unless you're a baseball fan. Pretty much all of my teams are either rebuilding or need to just kind of jettison whatever they are. They're kind of in some weird remake version of themselves. And I don't really have to pay attention to them for several months. And there's not going to be a lot of new content with the writer's strike and possibly the other three guilds or the three major guilds all striking at the same time. So this might be a good opportunity to start really getting through some of my favorite director's filmography, some project that I've been wanting to do for a while, but just haven't sat down and done, such as finishing all of Quentin Tarantino's movies, which I still haven't done because he's going to have allegedly a new one next year. I don't know what's going to happen with that right now, if he's also part of the strike or not. I know that he's kind of in between production or something. I know he had the draft written himself, but as a screenwriter, I I just wonder where he comes down on that. So it'll be an interesting time. If nothing else, there's plenty of classic movies. I've had a very long list for a very long time, and uh, it'll be good to catch up on some of those. But we'll be around for the rest of the summer as we come to you just about every week. I was surprised. We we did this just over a year ago, and we have had exactly 53 episodes since we did this last film. So we keep this up pretty much like clockwork. Yep. And not clockwork orange. Yet. We'll bring mom on for that one. Oh, I think I can skip that day. <laughs> I don't think I would be able to rain. articulate my opinions well. <laughs> I think you'll have a hard time with the toothpicks holding open the eyes. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, congratulations, guys. Anyway, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. One final thing I have to do, and then I'll be free of the past. Next week, we are discussing the film that recently was the number one movie on the Sight and Sound Greatest Movies of All Time list with the mystery thriller Vertigo from 1958. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock, screenplay by Samuel A. Taylor, Alec Koppel, Maxwell Anderson, starring James Stewart and Kim Novak. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find your new Facebook page on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. <laughs>